Yeah, you know, we had a long season and uh, took some time off the bike and time to start training again. So uh, I'm trying a little something a little bit different this year. Axel's really been looking for a new new way to cross train for years, and I think I finally found it. Cross training the basketball, really? Anything else you can find out? Let's try to stay on the bike. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo-ho, welcome to episode 67 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about basketball as good off-season training. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and news and articles this week. What did I come across? Well, I came across a really great short video series. It's a four-part series on YouTube that explains how to use your PR on your Strava segment as a Garmin virtual partner. You can also do this with other people's Strava segment information. And so when you're out training, if you have the correct Garmin computer, you can set it up so that you're racing that person on the actual segment itself. I think this is a pretty cool use of both technologies. And I really just see Strava information expanding and we get more and more useful stuff from this massive database of other gun riders going as hard as they can up certain climbs and segments. The other thing I came across is a blog article on alexcycle.blogspot.com. Why is my power different when training indoors compared to when I ride outside and what can I do about it? It is such a thorough piece of work. It is really wonderful. I would go check it out. It is from 2009, but everything pretty much stands absolutely current right now. It's an excellent piece of work. And if you want the answer to that question, I would definitely go and check out this blog post. If you watched the Tour of California this year, then you may or may not recognize this voice. I like to describe myself as good time trials compared to the climbers, you know? (laughs) Um, So for King of the Mountain points, I mean, it's perfect, you know, you have to ride a lot of breakaways uh, where, you know, time trialing is definitely a key skill and, uh, and just make it over the climbs. That's Carter Jones, the 24-year-old cyclist that took the KOM jersey in this year's edition of the Tour of California. Oftentimes, when a rider comes out of the blue like this, it's seen as an overnight success or a breakout year, but I know it takes years and years to get to this point, and this all may seem a little quite removed from your riding, but in many ways, you may follow the same pattern. Maybe not on a world stage like the Tour of California, but the idea of consistent improvement definitely stands true, whether we talk about your journey to fitness or a junior rider's road to glory. The the improvements are incremental. That's the thing, though. It's it's you're talking about after you've been training for a couple of years, you're talking about a couple percent improvement year over year. But you add those up over the course of five or ten years, you can still improve as a 30 or 40 year old relative to a 20 year old. That's Dr. Stephen McGregor. He's got a PhD in exercise physiology and is the director of the Applied Physiology Laboratory at Eastern Michigan University. He was also a competitive cyclist and he is Carter Jones's coach. So I recently had a chance to talk to Stephen about Carter Jones and this idea of constant improvement. I started off by asking him about his relationship with Carter. How did you begin working with Carter Jones? 
Uh, wow, that's uh, that goes back a ways. I, I've been working with him since 2006, I believe. So seven years. Uh, his first year as a as a senior. So he had been racing with the national team as a junior. I've been working with USA Cycling in their coaching ed program for several years. And uh, through the people that I knew inside USA Cycling, they contacted me about this rider who had a lot of potential. And and, and it's interesting. I, th- I think you're, you're kind of power centric to a certain extent. And if we go back to 05-ish, it was a time when power was not generally as accepted as it is now, I think. You know, it's actually been around for a long time, but but uh, coaches who, who used power were, were well-versed in power and were actually exclusive, like me, using power as a training metric and way to monitor performance, that, that type of thing. Um, they were actually quite as prevalent as they are now, and so that was one of the things. He had actually been using a power meter for two years as a junior already. Um, um, so we actually had um, historical data on him at that point, um, and so they were looking for somebody who who had who was well versed in power, um, and thought would be a good fit for him, and and so that's how we started, and and uh, I've been with him ever since. Going so far back with Carter, it was a good opportunity to ask him about Carter's progression over time, and this also carries lessons for you. Firstly, being careful with your training load. The starting point at your age are important here. Also, the destination. How far should you look ahead? The big difference is, and you'll get a little bit of debate about this depending on who you talk to but in in uh, there were re- really two things um, the one is you just increase overall training load um, you know an 18 year old the training load an 18 year old can handle is different than the training load a 20 year old can handle than a 23 year old can handle than a 30 year old can handle generally speaking um, you have phenoms who are 18 but even at that age you want to make sure that you're not burning them out by progressing them too fast. And so there's a little bit of of general principle that's applied. Okay, where have you been? Again, in his case, he had a couple years of training data, so that gives a good handle on where he had been and just doing kind of a a steady progression from there. Um, And then the other thing that you think about is, you know, what's their racing program look like and where does the where does the intensity need to be introduced? Because there's always a, a modulation intensity over the course of a year. Um, where does the intensity need to be introduced and, and at what level to prepare them for the races? And so for a national team rider, um, they do a European block or two, depending on the rider. And, and they're, even juniors and, and U23s, uh, they've got school considerations to t- to, to think about too. Some of them aren't in school. Some of them nowadays are actually doing online, which is nice. And so they may actually have a very flexible schedule. But again, when we started, he was a college student, um, first year college student, and he had his academic program and then his racing program. And so he had to be ready for his European campaign. And so you think about that as well as um, increasing the overall training load um, as, as the years progress. Um, so you have a, a destination you want to get to, and then you think about, okay, well, we're going to incrementally get there as opposed to, you know, uh, giving um, a world tour training load to a 19-year-old. Uh, that's not going to work. So It's no surprise that he mentions you can't plan too far ahead in detail and unforeseeable obstacles are thrown in your way, as was the case with Carter. In fact, 
it was a pretty big obstacle in the time-sensitive world of junior cycling development. Uh, you're thinking in vague terms about you know three or four years down the road, um, and I always say that uh, with anybody that I work with, because we always with different riders, you'll have okay, here's a plan, and then some of them get freaked out when the plan doesn't go accordingly, you know, and you're not sticking to a plan two years down the road, and and you're never going to stick to a plan two years down the road. Nothing ever goes as planned two years ahead of time, but you have uh, a framework that you're trying to 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 go by, and then as the conditions change, as the circumstances change. So so you think in in vague terms, three or four years down the road, he had a a plan that that he had a four year horizon. He had put down some goals and objectives um, that we were thinking about at that time. Uh, and but then also at the same time, you have to think, okay, well, getting to that point is going to require an incremental increase in the training load. Uh, and so we may need to adjust things accordingly along the way um, as as obstacles are thrown in your your way and and in his case, there have been a couple of pretty big obstacles that have been thrown in the way you know so we, we think about his um, progression slow steady progression, but I think it was two two and a half years ago he had a, a pretty uh, um, uh, big um, roadblock where he had a, a musculoskeletal issue um, due to position um, issues on the bike and and he couldn't ride for for two months essentially and so when you're talking about can't ride for two months in the march april time frame that's that's a big deal for your cycling season in the meat of the you know the european campaign and then that comes and that has a domino effect as as you take that two months off and then try to come back from it you're almost using losing a year of development so um uh, you know the, the year he's had this year is has been very solid it's a year that i probably would have expected from him maybe a year ago or, or or maybe even the year before if he wouldn't have had that setback so that's part of the reason that we look at the slow progression he you know he's he's had a couple of issues he had to deal with um, and, and that also shows his perseverance and, and strength of character as well setbacks are inevitable and it's a time when your character and determination get a chance to shine through I was interested in Stephen's take on this and his role in helping Carter get through setbacks how do you help him as a coach get over those? Uh, well, that's a good question. That, that's more of an art of coaching more than anything else. I think uh, there's two sides to that. There's the one the athlete has to actually have the strength of character and the perseverance to get through uh, and step over the obstacles, and and I've got a number of athletes. They're not all of the car- of the caliber of of Carter, but a number of athletes that are kind of in similar boats. The athletes that 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 um, excel and uh, can and then have a setback and then come back again. They have an internal drive that has to be there and then the coach can't do anything about that okay so the coach can't give an individual that internal drive no matter how hard you try you can try and motivate externally and that type of thing but the person has to have that internal drive to to get over those things and so he's one of those individuals and i've coached several of them that i always talk about that they're they're great to coach because um 
they have an internal drive. And as a coach, a lot of times, it's your responsibility to hold them back rather than push them. Um, the funnest people to coach are the people that have the drive that if you let them go, they'll get themselves into trouble. And, and so the trick is making sure that you're, you're, you're modulating what they do and providing enough external insight and objective opinion to say, okay, well, um, you're not ready to push yet or you are ready to push yet. Um, and, um, and that's really what it becomes is an, is an objective eye to say, okay, well, we have to hold off for another week before you're able to, to try and come back from this. And, um, and in the case of the year where he had the concussion, where he crashed at Redlands and had the concussion, um, which would have been last year, um, he was riding for Bissell again, and he was on the calendar to do, to do Gila a tour de Gila, um, in the States, uh, which is a 2.2 race. Um, and it's an altitude It's a very hard race in the United States to do uh, tour of California after that. Um, and actually to do Joe Martin, which is another relatively hard race in the States, not in the caliber of Gila, but it's still a pretty hard race in the United States. So it would have been three hard races back to back. And so he, he probably came back too soon for joe martin without with insufficient fitness and then went into gila and then did california and you know when you go into a series of three hard races like that that are back to back to back with insufficient fitness you just you get beat up as opposed to getting stronger and so to get stronger through the course of like the series here where he did utah and colorado we actually got stronger doing utah and colorado because he went into utah with this year with solid fitness and and good prep and and if you go in kind of under prepped uh then is you're probably not going to do as well and and but the thing is the race schedule dictates what you do as a pro so in that case we tried to manage his return as much as possible um but the schedule dictated um how fast he came back and you kind of cross your fingers <laughs> so <laughs> while it's nice to have someone overlooking your training it's not always the case in some way you have to monitor how you travel over time to ensure you don't get burnout i asked steven what he uses to track his athletes while you will be familiar with most of them there's a couple of interesting questions that he gets from athletes on a regular basis that would be a great way for you to start logging how you feel outside of the hard data the nice thing is nowadays we have these tools that you know that, that come from the power meter as the main tool and then the analytical tools that are derived from that and and so um, the software packages I have and and uh, some of the things that I look at from a, a power analysis standpoint point we look at things like their efforts at certain time frames um, that are indicative of kind of fatigue and in particular uh, neuromuscular fatigue also uh, there's a thing called the performance manager chart that that a lot of users of power meters will be familiar with and we look at the performance manager chart and that's actually a really nice tool especially for individuals who may not be the coach that has the objective uh, opinion um, the self-coached athlete is very valuable um, but even as, as a as a as a coach myself I use the performance manager chart it actually helps us see the forest for the trees a lot of times and it gives us a big picture that we may not be able to see um, in more detail um, so we you know there's a number of 
of metrics that we look at from a power analysis standpoint, and then actually subjective things. So, what's your, um, how do you feel today? You know, um, and I have many of my athletes log um, how they feel, what their fatigue state is, what their overall feeling is, how they slept, how many hours they slept, what their weight is, and and it becomes kind of a gestalt that you pull together. Um, so there are some objective data. And there's also some subjective data that you take together. And in a lot of cases, the athlete, um, the ones that that are able to push themselves too far, um, they they can't be honest with themselves. Or maybe they are honest with themselves, but they um, – about how tired they are or, or how hard things are. Uh, or maybe they just don't feel it as much, you know, and that's another thought. Is, uh, I have one athlete who, again, is one of those individuals, has an internal drive, and you just podium. We In the States, we've had Masters Nationals this week on the road, and um, he was one of the athletes I had that podiumed in his age group. and. He has a saying that a pro that he races against all the time says your your pain is no different than anybody else's pain. We don't know that. You know, I don't know what another individual's pain is. So maybe those athletes just don't feel pain like others do um, either. But regardless, they a lot of times would give you a different interpretation of the circumstances. Then, So you need objective data in the form of power analysis over different time frames, a performance manager chart. In my case, I, I look at that. And then actually the subjective data. How do, how do they feel? Um, so some are honest and, and, and some you need to rely on the objective data more. It's kind of this balance between the numbers and your internal voice. How honest are you with yourself about where you are with your training and your recovery? And for those familiar with the performance management chart, here's a little bit more detail on how Stephen uses it in the context of tapering. But when you model performance manager chart and, and you have um, the thing that indicates what's called TSB, which indicates how a person should perform on a particular day, we have guidelines about where that value should be given what type of event they're going into. This objective data um, is giving me information, but I actually have to think about the big picture that this objective data can't think about or we don't have a tool to think about just yet. So so anyway, um, in, in counter to that, we uh, we have a fair bit of information in the in the scientific literature about optimal tapering patterns, and then we can apply that to our our tools of performance analysis using the power meters and that type of thing. And and I taper many of my athletes for you know so for this past week we've had athletes doing the nationals at, at the masters uh, level here in in the states and we've been thinking about tapering them for their their races and we think about okay what's the traditional what's the the scientifically supported way to taper and then um, for a couple of particular, um, athletes, I've worked with them long enough to know that that doesn't work for them. <laughs> you know, that there's some athletes that you just can't taper them. They feel too rested. They feel too fresh. Um, and so we just kind of, we treat the nationals just like any other race that, okay, you're going to train until Thursday and then you'll take an easy day on Friday and then you'll race on Saturday. Um, and we don't taper. And, and we've done that through trial and error with them. And, and we've had enough experience on that individual to know that the, the, the traditional scientifically supported way to approach tapering doesn't necessarily work for that individual. The thing with monitoring yourself through your constant improvement, it's a blend of technology and good old-fashioned communication. But 
as Stephen sits close to the edge of the capabilities of technology, power is locked down as the hard performance metric. But I'm interested in other metrics, the soft metrics, the secondary metrics, and where that technology is heading. Oh boy, that's a big question. Um, you know, try and envision where technology is going to go in five years is almost uh, unknowable. But you know, we're going to get to the point where pretty much anything can be measured. You know, uh, whereas ten. 20 years ago, it was a, you had a heart rate monitor and that was about it. We're probably going to have monitors for just about every physiological metric uh, that became, can be measured non-invasively. And it's going to be uh, like a phone type of device, you know, that, that though we're going to have apps for those types of things in, in the very near future. Um, and you know, some of the tools that and, and I'd say that the, the jury's still out on a lot of these things. So there's there's a lot of um, uh, what are called nonlinear analytical techniques, um, some of which I've been involved with. Um, and uh, so some colleagues and I have, have published a number of papers on some nonlinear, nonlinear analytical techniques to try and identify fatigue using power files or, or running data. Um, and those types of tools can be applied to heart rate and they can be applied to sleeping patterns. And if you can collect a signal and quantify a signal, then you can start analyzing with nonlinear techniques. And so I think there's going to be a lot of activity that already is in the heart rate space in the scientific world, not in the, the you know, kind of in the consumer uh, fitness world, but in the scientific world, there's a lot of activity in nonlinear and analytical techniques with regard to sleep. And I think that'll ultimately be applied um, to monitoring, monitoring athletic uh, recovery and status uh, for performance. And it'll be another metric in the toolbox. I don't think there's going to be any one particular thing. Then that's the thing. If you're working on a thing, you know the the the, the nonlinear technique that we've worked on. You know, we thought it was going to change the world, and and there's no one thing that works infallibly. Um, so uh, it'll be another tool in the toolbox. So I think there'll be tools that'll look at sleep patterns, um, tools that'll look at heart rate uh, patterns, um, and the straight up tools like you know resting heart rate, just straight resting heart rate and recovery heart rate. Those will still be there, but you're going to have more sophisticated tools because the processing power now available both just in handheld devices like your phone or especially through online uh, servers that you'll have access to. So you'll have a, a training um, uh, database that you'll log into and they've got uh, immense computing power on their end and so you just upload your data and it'll be able to spit back a, a nonlinear analysis for you in a matter of minutes and and. And so those things will be there in a few years, uh, if not sooner. Here he drops what most coaches and athletes know deep down, but we rarely hear, that performance is the primary metric and everything else is secondary. The power meter itself, the portable power meter on, on bicycles was the revolutionary thing in cycling that um, nothing will match as uh, a tool or metric just because it gives us the way to measure performance and also um, assess intensity and, and prescribe and, and all sorts of things. So it is a, a, a multivariate tool of, of immense utility. Um, other things are really just secondary analytical tools. And so what I always tell people with – so, for example, heart rate is, is still relatively popular and, and was popular back 
geez, when I started racing back in the 80s. Um, and all we had was heart rate monitors at that point. And, and we didn't have power meters. And the reason the power meter is so important is because we didn't really have a way to objectively measure performance. And this is a, this is a speech I've given a zillion times. And it's, it's, it's uh, I apologize for those that our, our, our power um, things, and this is self-evident, but um, the point is that everything else is just a secondary metric. Performance is the primary metric, and you get so much information from the performance itself in that how how the training program is progressing and whether it's progressing too fast because performance is declining and you can model the training load in which you can plug into the PMC. So, um Everything is being derived from that performance metric. The performance metric itself is so vitally important that all the other stuff is just a secondary analytical tool. So I look at heart rate in some cases, but I don't look at heart rate on a regular basis to assess anything. But if somebody says, well, I've been sleep- I haven't been sleeping well, okay, what's your resting heart rate? Or if, if, you, if you raced in a hard race and your power was down, okay, and it was hot, okay, what was your heart rate in the race? Well, look at that. That's a secondary metric. But your sleep, uh, how many hours did you sleep? That's a relatively good measure of sleep quality. Again, a lot of people don't have a good handle on how well they slept, though. They go to bed at at 11 o'clock at night, and they get up at 8 um, or 7, and, and they may have woken up. Eight or nine, ten, ten, nine or ten times in, in the middle of the night, and having something that will measure that objectively would be a good tool. Um, it's again, it's not going to be the thing for. 80% of the population, there may be 10 or 20% of the people that are having sleep abnormalities because of their training, but um, the vast majority of individuals are, are just going to be sleeping just fine. So those are some examples of things that we can use as very valuable secondary metrics, but um, they're not going to be anything that's going to be more valuable than the performance measure itself. Yeah, I can definitely see where you're coming from there because the ultimate goal is, like you said, performance and we have something to measure that performance and it's even like doing mobility work, for example, or stretching or they're kind of all just individual adjustments to ensure that one person can get the most out of their body. They're not the thing that's actually creating the power always. Right. And, and it's just, and again, along those lines, people that, 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 um, that, Everybody that has their pet project thinks that their pet project is very important. So if you're a bike fitter, you think bike fitting is, is the most important thing in the world, and it's really not. <laughs> or if you're a strength person, then you think uh, strength training is the most important thing in the world, and it's really not. Riding your bike and pushing on the pedals is the most important thing, and the more you ride the bike and the more you push on the pedals, the better you'll get. And then you can tweak that with maybe adjustment to a bike fit or getting more aerodynamic or working on your strength through strength training or flexibility. But those are all just tweaks, and it's just like things that enhance performance, um, also things to analyze performance or recovery or status are all just you know secondary measures that all revolve around the performance itself. And so the most the most important tool is is the performance, and it'll give you the most information, and that's why the power meter is such a great thing. Um, and so there's going to be a whole bunch of other things that we can use as tools, but they'll just be secondary tools. And I couldn't let him get off the hook without asking him another easy question. I just want to round off today by asking you, what is the one piece of coaching wisdom that you can impart on us? Hmm. <laughs> Tough question. Wow. I know. I know. It's that's a, a. That's a. Um, yeah. Hmm. Wrap, wrap up fifty or fifteen years of coaching in one sentence. <laughs> yeah, that's actually. Uh, hmm, what's the one thing? What's the one thing? Um, 
I think the um, I guess the, the central theme of of my coaching philosophy probably is, and 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 this is something that that maybe not a lot of coaches necessarily uh, they may not say, uh, but it's something that people forget a lot of times. Is if you're a competitive cyclist and anything other than the kilo or the match sprint. The most important thing is aerobic development, and um, there are a lot of other things that can enhance that. But the most important thing is is aerobic development. So, optimizing aerobic development is the m- most important thing to becoming a better cyclist. Um, and and how you do that uh, is is the trick. Um, so that's I, th- I think a lot of times that key point gets missed in all the the noise that's out there today um with information and metrics and all that jazz and so like i said riding the bike and pushing on the pedals is important and getting the most out of that from an aerobic development standpoint is probably the most important thing to do as an athlete or as a coach to to pull that out of your athletes bringing it back to your development and constant improvement If you've ever wondered if you can continually improve year after year, it's definitely a long haul. But Stephen brings back a couple of great points here, including the great thing about longevity in a low-impact sport like cycling. Mm, well, there's a there's a short and a long. I would say that that actually that you know, we we see relatively big improvements in the relatively short term, um, meaning yeah, on average we say about twenty percent improvement in in aerobic fitness um, within the you know two months of training, really two to three months of training, and that all comes from one physiologic underlying physiological adaptation, which is all cardiovascular in nature. Then the longer duration uh, adaptations come. In the muscles themselves, um, with uh, with aerobic development in the muscles, and and those take years. and And I would say that um, the time frame is not <laughs> is not infinite, but it's it's multiple year. Um, and and that's why you see guys like Chris Horner, who can still progress and improve. Um, relative to what he did 20 years ago. I remember when it, – it's pretty scary when you remember when Chris Horner was a kid. <laughs> I used to go on training rides with Chris Horner when he was a kid. And um, the guy is now – he's, what, 41 and and still improving, you know. And and so that's the great thing about cycling. That's the, the great thing about cycling. If we compare it to other endurance sports like running, for example. Running really beats you up. And at some point, most people get beat up so much that they can't run and progress very much but my guy that got national championship yesterday or wednesday in the 55 plus uh in the time trial at masters nationals in the states has gotten better and he's 55 and he's been racing for decades so um the the improvements are incremental that's the thing though it's it's you're talking about after you've been training for a couple years you're talking about a couple percent improvement year over year but you add those up over the course of five or ten years you can still improve as a 30 or 40 year old relative to a 20 year old and that's the great thing about cycling steve uh let everybody know how they can get in contact with you if they uh, want to find out more about you 
Yeah, well, I'm 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 affiliated with the the Peaks Coaching Group, Hunter Allen's Peaks Coaching Group in the states. Um, and so, if you go there, there's a link to my coaching page and a, a contact info for me there. I'm also a professor at Eastern Michigan University, and and if you go to Eastern Michigan University, you can look me up there. Um, I've got email addresses that are that are uh, there's an email address Stephen S T P H E N at peakscoachinggroup.com, and at my university, it's S. McGregor, S. M. C. G. R. E. G. O. R. at emish, E. M. I. C. H. dot E. D. U. Cool. And you do have a book, The Runner's Edge, which I will put a link in the show notes if there are any people that do run, but uh, it is a cycling people, show. So any, I discourage them. I discourage them. <laughs> Anybody that's listening. <laughs> Actually, uh, I will also uh, – there, there is a, um, a triathlon book, uh, Triathlon Science, edited by Joe Friel um, that just came out. Actually, I should say Joe Friel and Jim, Jim Vance that just came out over the winter that I contributed three chapters to. Hunter Allen contributed a chapter to. Matt Fitzgerald contributed a chapter to. It's a really good book. And it actually gives you some of my the stuff that I talked about in here, which is uh, applicable to cycling as well as triathlon too. So there you have it. Constant improvement is not just the realm of juniors, but the principles definitely apply to your cycling, no matter where you're at. So planning in advance, monitoring all aspects of riding and life outside of cycling, and also learning how to overcome setbacks will definitely ensure that you can continue improving year after year and staying at a high level in cycling for a long time to come. Now, the tech hacks and product section, and this week it's a product called Stuffits. It doesn't sound very technical, and it probably isn't really, but I'll tell you what. What they're doing is replacing the old newspaper trick when it comes to shoes, and really, I don't think you can go wrong with newspaper, and I didn't see an initial reason to have these in the first place, but I can tell you if you are commuting or you're riding in the wet a lot and you need to have your shoes the next day in this day and age of less newspapers, because I've got to tell you, I don't know anybody that buys newspapers. So in the day and age of no newspaper lying around your home and you really want to have a solution. So stuff it's there to fill that gap, to ensure that you have dry gear and it's helmets, shoes, gloves, and your gear that you can use with stuff it's. I would check them out if this is a big problem for you and it will definitely save you from buying that newspaper that you don't read anyway. Now, that quote from the top of the show, it's O'Connor Leary. I don't know if you know about this guy. He rides for the Bontrager team. He's had a pretty rough trot and he did have testicular cancer back in 2010. And I've got to say, it's pretty inspiring what he's trying to do now because he's actually trying to flip it around and turn it into an inspiring story for other people to follow. So definitely, I'll put the link in the show notes and you're interested in this guy's journey. Check it out. He's a young cat. He's still got time to grow and develop. So his name may pop up in the next couple of years. So keep your ear to the ground. And that is it for this week. So till next week, get on your your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box whichever one you're into 